Hello and welcome to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. Human life is nothing in the morning, in the long field at the top of the hill by the airport. Little dark birds knife around each other through the air, above the long grass. White dandelion puffs ripple like one organism in the open. My kids call them wishes. Yellow flowers bud on trees. Others with purple leaves sway plump. The wind is perfectly cool, just a remembrance of cool. The sun is mellow in the early, cloudless sky. Last week, Derek Chauvin, a police officer in Minneapolis, murdered George Floyd by slowly applying a knee to his neck while three other officers watched. Video of the event circulated online, sparking outrage and protest across America. While these events themselves are sadly not without precedent, it seems America has reached a tipping point. Buildings have burned, people have been hurt, and from Minneapolis to Brooklyn to Los Angeles, police presence has done nothing to quell the unrest. On the contrary, police have incited violence, ramming cars into crowds and attacking protesters, journalists, and bystanders alike. All of this confirming and reconfirming the power dynamic in our society. The suspicion that we do not live in a free society. That our American system of justice and oppression, built on the theft, subjugation, and murder of people of color, domestically and around the world, serves to protect the rich, to protect economic gain, to protect the white. You wouldn't know this on top of the hill, the soft crush of trucks on the highway, a small plane flapping a comical distance above the runway, all the little cars like ants pulling in and out of fast food joints. You wouldn't know it because oppression is rarely happening right in front of you, but you still know it. You will always know that the oppression of black people is the history of America and that the police serve as the blunt instrument of that oppression. I have worked with the police in the past on music videos, on various projects, but I think it is time, way past time, to reevaluate how I and others represent the police in stories and in movies. It is past time to take responsibility for ourselves as white Americans to deconstruct a brutal and exploitative system that ultimately benefits us by defunding and ultimately pulling the plug on a militarized police force altogether. So that's what we're gonna focus on in the coming weeks here at Blight. But in this episode, that we have been working on for two weeks. We will tell other stories of memoriam, of our social responsibility to each other, of family, of our passage into the next life. And if you think those subjects still seem relevant, well, then we agree. We hope you enjoy the program today. And frankly, we love you. Please be safe and be strong. George Floyd, rest in power.
Our next story comes from Adam Krauss. Adam has appeared on more than 30 recordings and published numerous essays and books, including The Revolution Will Be Hilarious and Other Essays, New Compass, 2018. Here's Adam. I wrote a piece for the podcast last weekend all about the importance of masks and slowing the spread of COVID-19, as there were so many belligerent idiots out there screaming about how masks are oppressive to their individual liberties, and it seemed like an important point to address. But then another cop murdered another innocent person, and even though the murder was filmed, it seemed like the only repercussion might be that the cop would get written up at work or something. But then Minneapolis rose up and a police precinct burned to the ground. So that's what happened in the days between writing and recording this. I can't even imagine what's going to go down between recording and releasing it. So if this little meditation on masks and scraping paint seems just oh so terribly quaint and behind the times by the time it reaches your ears, very sorry. But please everyone, mask up. Mask up against the police. Mask up against the racist police state they uphold. And yeah, mask up against COVID-19. So here it is, something I wrote last week. So there I was, in my front yard, transplanting seedlings into the soil outside. My next-door neighbor had been scraping paint on his upper porch and chose that moment to use a leaf blower to blow paint chips off the porch and onto my head. Now listen, I've done some painting and restoration in my day and have cleaned up a paint chip or two. Our company was LEDSAFE certified, and I happen to know that the goal with paint chips is to gather them up, seal them in a bag, and send them to a landfill, which although not perfect, is better than sending them flying into the breeze with a leaf blower. I shaved my head, and I was sweating, so a bunch of the paint chips stuck to my head. My neighbor, obliviously, just kept right on blowing both figuratively and literally. I picked up some of the bigger pieces and put them in his hostas. It was the least I could do. Later, I watched a video about why even simple cloth masks can help slow the spread of COVID-19. The video had originally been done live with a live chat, and the guy was barely into his presentation when he was like, okay, the chat is blowing up with people saying masks are ineffective. We'll get to discussing all these claims. Please hold on. He carefully explained how one of the best ways to keep infections down is to minimize the amount of virus-containing liquid in the air. Really, any barrier between your nose, mouth, and the world is better than none. Even a bandana helps. The fact that this is minimizing and not eliminating doesn't make masks pointless. And as they say, a mask is worn to protect others from you. So if you wear a mask to protect me and I wear a mask to protect you, we'll both be safer, and so will your grandma. There's a very good reason masks are required equipment in hospitals. We live in a society. Collectively caring for the collective good is one of the main reasons societies exist. Simple, seemingly indisputable. But, believe it or not, there are people who don't think we live in a society and that the individual is the only social unit that matters. Margaret Thatcher famously said in an interview with Women's Own magazine that... There is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women, and there are families. Ayn Rand similarly argued that total self-interest is the best way to act. She said that if everyone selfishly looks out for themselves, things will automatically work out for the best. Maximized self-interest maximizes efficiency. 
It's like Austrian economics applied to every aspect of life, the logic of unfettered free markets applied to interpersonal dynamics. If we all seek the utmost profit and self-satisfaction, nature will somehow find a way. These ideas that individual liberty is all that matters and society is imaginary are embodied in the anti-mask crowd. I find masks dumb or uncomfortable. I am a free individual, and you can't make me. But Thatcher was wrong. We do live in a society. We are nothing without each other. Every word I'm using here has a socially defined meaning that changes over time through collective use. Even making the claim that there's no such thing as a society requires a society. We co-create what we experience and how we experience it. We live in a society, and part of being social beings is doing our part to keep virus-bearing water droplets out of our shared air, the shared air in which we meet and create meaning. Similarly, paint chips belong in a sealed bag and not on my head or in my garden. Please bag up your paint chips and wear a mask. This is a democracy, so yes, there is individual liberty, but the demos of democracy comes from the Greek word for the people, so the people collectively form the basis for society. As such, collective care and respect are required for it to function, ideally. In reality, it seems more like a chaotic free-for-all designed to support the endless accumulation of wealth for a handful of oligarchs, but if we're going to hearken back to founding documents and ideals of democracy while arguing about masks and say the promise of individual liberty means no mask for me, I'd say you should put the demos back in democracy and recognize that if we're living of, by, and especially for the people, that should involve us collectively respecting our collective health and well-being through simple steps that aren't that big of a deal. We are, after all, the people, and we need to look out for all of us. Okay, so that's my monologue about paint chips and viruses. There's one curveball I'd like to throw in as a clunky addendum because it's been bothering me. It may be that all this coverage of aggressively ignorant people aggressively refusing to wear masks is being hurled at us endlessly on the news so we'll blame those dumb yokels rather than systemic failures. The government suggested we stay home for a few months and in that time got nothing in place, left a shortage of medical supplies unremedied, and then said, okay, back to work. When the death toll gets even more beyond absurd and we might actually realize the magnitude of their crime, we won't actually realize it, because we knew all along it was that moron who refused to wear a mask to Walmart. It was him, I saw him on the news. This may be a bait-and-switch of blame, from the oligarchs onto one another. So maybe I fell for something here. But please, wear a mask when you leave your house. No matter what Margaret Thatcher said, we do live in a society... And with that simple fact comes some simple responsibilities. Thank you. Our next story is by Tom McGowan. Tom is a storyteller, thinker, and overall gentleman. Here's Tom. When I first met my neighbor, Marshall Milner, in 1977, he was an old man. In 2010, he was older than God. 
And yet at the age of 94 years old, he was still riding a bicycle and climbing 20-foot stepladders. He bought an old house for next to nothing when the neighborhood was on its knees, and he tore it apart and put it back together. Took all the siding off, put blackboard sheathing on, intending to brick it over someday. Tore a room off, put another one on. Rebuilt the foundation with concrete block, doing all the work by himself. He was a master of many trades, construction being only one of them. In the basement, he had the mechanics tools and the welding equipment and about 20 bicycle frames he was going to do something with. And upstairs, one room was the woodworking shop, another was the electronics bay with the oscilloscope, signals generators, amplifiers, and boxes of big vacuum tubes. And he had not one, but two or three of every tool you could imagine. The tools were like his children, his precious. And if he loaned one out, it was a thing of worry for both sides until it came back. And I don't believe he ever gave a tool away to anyone over all those years. He wasn't much on relationships, he wasn't a hugger. And the friends he had, whether it was two years or 20, he'd suddenly cut them out of his life saying they were stealing from him. And I had to guard against that happening to me too. And as he got older, every Saturday morning, I'd go over and check on him and knock on the door. And he'd say, what do you want? And I'd say, just checking on you, Marshall. And then he'd start to talk. You see, when you live alone, it can be a lonesome thing. And he talked for a half hour until I found a way to ease away to get my chores started for the day. And come one fourth of July, when I knocked on the drawer, he wasn't there. I knew where to check on him if he got in a jam. That'd be Grady Hospital downtown. And like it was like the time I was on the roof with him, keeping him company while he was cutting a few boards and replacing them. And he put his skill saw down with those fine bearings spinning that wheel down slowly and reached across it for his hammer and caught his hand in the blade. And we had to get him down off the roof and get him to Grady to get him patched up. I called and found him there, went down to see him, and I said, Marshall, why are you here? And he said, well, I came down to get some new glasses, and they kept me. They kept me. And it took a lot of the digging because of HIPAA rules. I finally found out that Adult Protective Services had taken over his life. And with a lot further digging, I found out the reason was they drove by his house and saw all that blackboard sheathing that was slowly returning to sawdust and had holes in the front big enough for not just one squirrel, but a family to come and go. And you know, I had volunteered to take some of the blackboard sheathing he had still saved inside in his storeroom and replace what was on the front. But no, Marshall was too independent for that. He couldn't let people do things for him. After three weeks at Grady, he disappeared and I tracked him down to a nursing home at Boulevard and Auburn across from the old fire station three-story building. And I went to visit him, and that first day we walked up and down the corridors together just talking, like that half hour we would spend on Saturdays. But over three weeks, he slowed down like a clock that needed to be rewound. The last day I was with him, he was resembling the other two gents in his room that sat on the edges of their beds, rocking back and forth like they had just shot up. 
And I'm sure they were given a medication, but maybe it was just the way things were going to be. But that last day, as he talked to me, all he could do was open one eye while he said a few words on and off. And on Monday morning, I got the call that he was dead and that they had given the keys to his house to a man named Orem. It was the only person that he trusted, the only person he trusted after 94 years of being on this earth. And the neighbors and I saw Orem coming and going with boxes and bags from the house. None of us knew who he was, never had seen him around before. And we had visions of the house being left open and vacant and fires looming. And that's when I called Melvin. Melvin would visit Marshall every, every maybe once or twice a year. And one time when he was looking for Marshall, I knew he was out. I let Melvin know that. And he said, well, tell him that Melvin had stopped by. And when I saw Marshall later in the day, I said, uh, your son Melvin was here looking for you. And Marshall said, he's not my son. He snapped at me. And why did I think Melvin was Marshall's son? Was it something a neighbor had said? I don't think so. It's just that when they were together, they looked like family. But that's when I called Melvin up and I said, Melvin, this guy Oren says he's taken over to work on the estate for Marshall Miller. And he says, that's okay by you. And Melvin had not said so. I got the three of us on the phone together and we had reached a stalemate because nobody had authority to work on Marshall's behalf. He was too independent to ever sign a sheet of paper to tell people what to do. And my wife and I staked Melvin to a DNA test. I got to know the city coroner pretty well over the phone. He kept Marshall on ice for an extended period until everything got settled. And I got that letter in the mail and called Melvin up. Said, so the DNA folks have, have sent me a sheet of paper with a bunch of numbers on the left and right side at the bottom. But I said, let me read you that last sentence of what they said. It says there's a 99%, uh, gracious, <laughs> there's a 99.9% .9 chance that you're related to Marshall Milner. And there was silence on the phone. And then I heard a big sigh, Melvin's a big man. And after almost 70 years of being denied, denied, and denied, the charade was over. He was Marshall's son, and Marshall was his father, period. And Oren graciously handed the estate matters over to Melvin, and he got the house cleaned out and sold. And it got rebuilt with a new family, good neighbors across the street now. And we all pulled together and arranged for a funeral for Marshall with about 15 people who knew him well there. And we told stories, some of them that gave people a laugh about Marshall's eccentricities and his tools. Like the time for me, when he told me for six months running, somebody had taken his four foot brass bound level, an important tool that you needed in the world when you were young and coming up and doing things. And I happened to be in his house and walked by and I saw something back between the refrigerator and the wall. And I said, Marshall, look here, is that that level you were looking for? And he said, my God, they put it back. Well, what could I say to that? <laughs> he got me fair and square. Sometimes I think he was talking about things he was missing. It was just letting me know that he was anxious about things in general.
And after the funeral, we went out to the interment way out west in the end of Atlanta for the burial. And after the prayers were over, I had a quick word with one of the undertakers. And I gave him my Swiss army knife with its dozen little tools on it. Asked him to put it in with Marshall. So you have some tools to go into the next life with, like the Egyptians did. So in the end, it worked out good for everybody, Marshall included. And I remember sitting down with Melvin and Amelia, his wife, after it was all over. Having a cup of coffee, it might have been at the old stone soup kitchen in Grand Park. When they told me I was family. Yes, I was family. And for those of you who are from the South, you know what that means. That means a lot. Thank you for listening to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I'm Sean Williamson. Please check us out on Instagram and Twitter. A rating on Apple Pods is a true gift. As always, links to cited articles and information can be found in the show notes. Playing us out today is Before the Bardo, Colo Dance, which is a musical performance by Lomira, the home recording project of Muriel Alshuang and Adam Krauss. This is from their Bandcamp page. This piece is Lomira's alternative to taps. It is a funerary tribute for every soul. This recording was made at a flag-folding ceremony in a North American forest in March 1732. We were able to affix a contact microphone to the soul as it entered Bardo and documented a few split seconds of sound before the microphone was annihilated. We slowed this brief moment down to a comprehensible speed for our listeners. The melody heard here is the soul's final memory from its last lifetime. You can pick up this work and others at lomira.bandcamp.com.
Mm-hmm. 